to the memory of those who've made us laugh, to the motley mountebanks, the clowns, the buffoons, in all nations and times, whose efforts have lightened our burden a little. This podcast is affectionately dedicated. For today's episode, we watch Preston Sturgis' 1941 film, Sullivan's Travels. Welcome to Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. Welcome back, guys. Thank you very much for joining us again today as we talk about the great film by Preston Sturgis, Sullivan's Travels from 1941, starring Joel McRae, Veronica Lake, and Robert Warwick. It had a budget of $689,665 at, I believe it was something like $86,000 over budget by the time they finished from what I saw. That's quite a bit of money for 1941. And unfortunately, there's a lot of different numbers out there for how it did. IMDb has a low $10,000 cumulative worldwide gross, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And Wikipedia says something like 1.2 million, which is probably like in its lifetime. So there's not a lot of accuracy that I could see on how it did. But uh, I'm really excited to dig into this. So Mike, why don't you tell me why we picked it? Why you picked it? Uh, I will. But first, I just a quick apology for missing the show last week. Uh, schedules and what have you got in the way. Um, we will make an effort in the future not to, not to do that. It may happen again, but... Uh, You'll also notice this is the third week of the month in which we usually do a Canadian film, but we're pushing that to next week, the fourth week of the month. Uh, so, and we will follow that uh, pattern going forward. So the, the Canadian film will now be on the fourth week of every month coming forward. Going which, forward. I mean, that makes more sense anyway. Like yeah. why, why it was on the third, I don't know. Our, Weird times. We'll just make it the end of the month. <laughs> Much simpler. Uh, but as for uh, my context coming into this film, so I came to Preston Sturgis. He was a name that I kind of heard when I started studying film. And uh, I mean, studying on my own as like a teenager and that kind of thing. He was one of the early masters of the golden ages of Hollywood and that kind of thing. Um, but it, not somebody that I ever really paid attention to until I started studying the Coen brothers more and through them I found him because he was a very big influence on them to the point that they named one of their films after the fictitious film in this film or the fictitious story in this film that they're they're going to make a movie about. Um, so through that I, I learned about Preston Sturgis and then so sometime 10-15 years ago uh, when I was buying Criterion DVDs fairly regularly, <laughs> I picked this one up um, based on seeing his name and the one sheet on the cover, which was is actually I think kind of a famous movie poster now. But it's Veronica. It's like a it's a caricature of Veronica Lake on a yellow poster, and it's got her what I believe was called the peekaboo hairstyle, which is the hair that covers one eye, so you're only seeing the other eye at any one time given adopted by emo girls everywhere in the <laughs> <laughs> sure but also other like blonde, yeah, yeah. blonde bombshells yeah, yeah. used a similar look and and Mysterious. her look her look got um uh pinched by uh kim basinger and in, in la confidential very much is doing a veronica lake impression as far as i can tell so yeah so i kind of had um it was kind of on a whim that i i, I watched this movie and then i truly truly fell in love with it the first time i watched it i it um it's a movie that i've shared with people it's one that when people are like oh i don't like old movies i'm like check this one out it feels old but also has like weirdly fresh ideas 
Um, and so that's kind of the context I brought into it. Uh, what about yourself? Well, I had never seen a Preston Sturgis film before we watched this for the, the show. Um, my entire experience with uh, old movies and, and sort of the golden era Hollywood age movies are the kind of things that get shown in film school. I've seen, you know, Georges Méliès' Trip to the Moon being the first movie ever made. I've seen Great Train Robbery. I've seen, you know, lo- lots of like the classic stereotypical sort of like film student old old movies and had never had a lot of access until I signed up for Criterion recently and started like perusing that a little bit of actually watching some of these older movies. And I it's interesting that you say people who don't like old movies are the person you recommend it for because it's comedy is is very context heavy and it often is very dependent on a person experiencing things of the time and being in that sort of uh cultural moment to really find it funny and so watching uh comedies from uh, coming into watching a comedy from 1940 i was concerned that i wasn't gonna find it funny and that i was you know but like everything about it just kind of hit home the the comedy is easy to easy to understand it's easy to get behind it's got a lot of relevant stuff and uh with um today's world i think this was this is a war film it was made in the heat of the u.s hadn't joined the war yet but the world had been at war for several years um and it was kind of a dark time coming out of the dirty 30s there was just there was a lot of bad things happening yeah lots of people dying lots of of poverty and and i think that while maybe not to the same extent we are finding ourselves in a strangely similar world right now minus the war but you know death counts are not uh, super great around the world and uh, economy has not been doing well for so I think there's a lot of cultural connection here that that um, helped and and helped me connect really well with the sort of themes and ideas that I think are extremely important to remember in today's day and age so while I had never seen it before uh, it it definitely hit home with uh, with a lot of what it was trying to talk about yeah, that's yeah. It, I think uh, a lot of what you just said is part why it rang true for me as well. Um, the coming coming out of the Great Depression, the Great Depression essentially, the economic recovery was the Second World War. Um, so we're just it's ending in so much as they're about to enter the war, but we're still very much in the Great Depression times when this movie set and when it came like when it came out, but when the yeah. It's set in the same year that it came out. It's, yeah, well, I think it might be set the like in nineteen forty because oh, right. they refer to forty one right. as in your plants the, of forty one. Yeah, yes, would be the future movie that he would be re- releasing, um, and he already released ants in your plants thirty eight. Um, <laughs> plants, not pants, which I thought at first it was. I was so sure it was ants in your pants. <laughs> no. but I don't. I really want to know what a movie called Ants in Your Plants is about. And like, how that's funny. Yeah. And the other, uh, there was three movie titles, but I only caught two. Ants in Your Plants and Hey Hey in the Hayloft was the other one yes, that I yes. caught. Which that one, the context seems very clear. And then when, when but, Veronica Lake's character discusses their Hayloft uh, uh, interaction in the film to him, it's sort of like, oh yeah, there's probably 
you know, kind of a sexual tension movie about like whatever. But anyway. Well, yeah, and the horse sneezes. The big gag with the horse sneezing because of the hay or whatever, <laughs> and and uh, and then the next simple comedy scenes you see him sneezing in hay and such. Oh yeah, you know, I didn't even pick up on that. Dang. Well, well spoke, sir. Yeah. Did not notice that. Should have picked up on that. But I, I think um, knowing a kind of a bit about Preston Sturgis up top would, would help us with uh, when we get into the analyzing of this film because I, and and apparently I haven't seen many Preston Sturgis films. I, I did see this. I've seen Lady Eve. I've seen Palm Beach Story. Um, and I would like to see The Great McGinty, but I still haven't seen that or some of his other great works. Um but it's um, it's it's this character is, from what I can tell, a kind of a stand-in for the director himself, or somewhat the director's feelings and views from what I've read about him and that kind of thing. So understanding him is is a little helps us understand uh, J. L. Sullivan a little bit more. And so Preston Sturgis was kind of born to a like bohemian mother who was like a, 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 like an arts um, a person who w- worked in the arts, uh, both I think as in, like an actor and a dancer and a little bit of stuff on stage or whatever. And and then early on in his life, she moved to Paris. So he grew up in Paris until just before, like in the early 19 teens, uh, her mother seeing was worried that he would get. Uh, kind of patriotic fever and join the air like the royal air force or, or sorry the french air force or, or french foreign legion or something like that to get in this first world war um so she sent him back on a on a like a, a steamliner with apparently like a dance troupe a famous dance troupe and that's how he came back to the states and then he spent time in chicago where he eventually became a playwright um oh and while he was working or living in Paris, he apparently worked at a cosmetics store where he invented a type of lipstick that didn't transfer or smudgeless lipstick or something. Really? Yeah, very crazy. Uh, Well-rounded man, apparently. Well, yeah. So this is the thing about him: is he seems like a bit of like like a a quiet genius or whatever, somewhat of a Renaissance he's, man. He's one of those like aristocratic types that you picture from from like 18th century where they don't really have a job because they have family money and they just putz around doing what they feel like doing and making all these crazy things and art and stuff and from what i understand that's kind of how he lived his life like he he worked only when he needed to work and the other well i mean he was very prolific in the years he, he worked sorry but uh as like there is a lot of in the documentaries and stuff i watched about him there's a lot of information from his friends and and co-workers and stuff that he procrastinated a lot and but then he also he would knock not knock out a screenplay or he, he apparently he wrote one of his first plays in six days or something to that effect um like he so when he was going he could he just his genius really helped him out by kind of getting it in the first take i guess yeah yeah uh um, well we can there's something about that for the movie too that we can mention when we yeah yeah well that that is true um and so uh but his his life uh so his first play was i guess a bit of like a hit and miss with critics but his second play was a massive hit and um so then i I guess he just kind of turned into a playwright um which was based on i guess the woman he was seeing before he wrote his first play was either writing poetry or plays herself and she had a playwriting book with her, so he read the book, The Art of the Drama, or something. 
and then yeah, uh, like, the old timey save the cat, if you will. Yeah, and then he was like, "Well, I guess I'm gonna do this." Uh, and then he gets um, uh, Hollywood eventually comes calling because of his success on Broadway and success in theaters, and he becomes a just a play or a screenwriter in Hollywood. Isn't he also the first screenwriter to ever become a director? So he he does. That's like so he. He also, back then, they used to have screenwriting teams, and it would be two people that would write er everything. And sometimes that would be the, like, Billy Wilder wrote his movies with somebody and then and then directed them. Um, but, yeah, as far as I know, and it's what led to them going and finding Orson Welles, in fact, was Preston Sturgis was a theater guy who then became, like, a film and uh, writer and director so then when Orson Welles was a radio guy well he was a theater radio he had his own theater too oh I didn't know that yeah part. yeah and then he so he they found him there and essentially and they brought him over but he wouldn't go to Hollywood until he could have the power to write and direct and it was Preston Sturgis among some other guys who broke that door down that that's super cool I I, I do I do love those kind of stories of of artists who uh, one for good or for ill have enough pull and enough sort of balls to just you know demand what they want from the big studios and, and end up getting it like the fact that he changed the industry because he wanted to direct the stuff he wrote is is really cool and he also but he also changed the writing side of the industry because because he was a solo guy on the writing side of things i believe he was then demanding the same price oh. so he was getting double the amount that other writers were getting well because this script sold for six thousand is what i saw yeah but his first the first script that he sold the great mcginty to was his first one that he directed he sold that for a dollar or five dollars or something like a very minimal amount but with the understanding that he would get to direct it so they were like okay we'll take a, gr a screenplay from the great preston sturgis at a that free one, like, basically yeah at that price so and yeah, fine we'll let him direct and then he ultimately becomes the first writer direct or one of the first writer director producers and and oh we should say this is for the sound era there was silent right. era writer yeah. directors yeah stars chaplin because also keaton. yeah chaplin keaton and and like film comes from an era where somebody wrote something and then made something there was no system within which you know it's not like george melies wrote and then right. whatever he wrote and directed so his stuff, and he still wouldn't have been the first to do this but he was one of the first to be a writer director producer when he eventually leaves uh fox or whatever or uh, um universal or paramount i forget which one he's with I at the time paramount I think he was with all three of those companies at different times right, in his okay, life. Right, okay, then I can. Um, and then he goes like to Howard Hughes' uh, production company, and then he has to leave that. And anyway, but um, he's it's he's just a very important figure that I didn't study in film school, and I and he doesn't get brought up that much, but it, he changed the game in many ways. Well, and I think that comes from what he made, and that. In, in and of itself really reflects on the themes that we'll get into because all he made was sort of like lighthearted comedies for the most part. I think this is one of the more serious movies that he's made. And, and so now us looking back as filmmakers studying, we look at his movies as low, like the literal term is would be lowbrow entertainment. It's for the masses. It's not made to, to be thought too heavily about quote unquote and things like that. So film schools and 
and the the critics and like the highbrow hoity-toity types who think that you know and and there's a place for that kind of art but there's a place for the kind of art that is not heavy but provides something for the people who who watch it and i think that uh, it surprises me that i'd never heard of them and i think that more more film schools and more teachers of film should be talking about the stuff that he did well and i think that also has to do a bit with how his career and ended like he ended not in complete disgrace but in somewhat disgrace i didn't know that either he had a few flops that ended his career and that was not his necessarily his fault a little bit um i also just to like on that point i feel like that that's one of the toxic elements of this business is that you can be a fantastic artist a fantastic filmmaker and storyteller and you can have two movies that don't find an audience and your career is done and it changes how everybody views you but like if orson wells had had a huge flop as his last movie instead of just some small failures i think that uh I, I think that we wouldn't remember him the way we do today. And that, that to me is, is kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like a more modern example in my head is Francis Ford Coppola. Who yeah. Had, like, yeah. Yeah. He had an amazing seventies, like uh, all time greatest decade for a filmmaker, I would think. And then his eighties work is pretty good. And then his nineties work is gets more sparse and is still pretty strong. And then in the two thousands, he's like, very sparse work and then i can't think of the last film that he made now and i mean sure there's there's like a, a level of like oh maybe you've lost touch and like i get there's there's a lot of money on the line and all of that is very important in in decision making about what gets made and things but like you, you can't you can't judge a book by its cover and in the same way you can't judge an artist filmmaker whatever by one piece that they made well and the out of touch thing is interesting and this film gets into that type of thing a bit but it or a lot i guess but what um because for a director telling a story writing a story absolutely you really need to understand the plight and all and that kind of thing but to tell a story um i don't think necessarily you fall you need to have a super personal relationship with that with that material i mean uh sorry i i'm talking myself in circles here a little bit because obviously and like when we talk about certain there are certain stories we know it's not our story to tell anymore as like a white guy or whatever and things like that so there are stories and material that you should have you should have some personal connection to before you tell the story but I think if you're a strong enough storyteller that it pr provided a story by another by an like an outside source, I think any great that which is my defense for why isn't Francis Ford Coppola still working? I guess because I I always thought he was a very strong and may, you know it might be by choice. I I haven't really looked into it much. But I, I I think that that's kind of a thing with with the directors who are not writer directors that is is the only way you can keep in keep on making successes is you have to be able to you have to be able to take somebody else's story and find your own voice within it and i think that it's the same for writers if you're contracted to write something that isn't the story you necessarily want to tell um but you you need the work or you or you want the work in that field you know then maybe you got to take those but you also have to then find whatever piece of this story that isn't as connected with you that is still your story so 
I, I guess I would agree and disagree to that. Only, only that any story can be made, uh, not made to fit your, your personal experience, but like you can find connecting pieces to tell stories that aren't yours in ways that are more personal without knowing them intimately necessarily. Yeah, that's, I guess that's all I'm trying to say as well. Well, there you go. I guess we agree. <laughs> Uh, so, um, I guess that's, I've, we talked about Preston enough, um, so that the, the listeners have somewhat of a background of who this gentleman was. Um, he did, apparently he died writing a, while writing a script. So I, oh, wow. I do like that kind of idea as well, romantically that he died doing something Yeah, he was great at it. It's, it's definitely a lot more of a romantic death than a lot of other writers get. I mean, so. it was potentially horrible because it was a heart attack or something. But well, like, yeah, but well, I, I overworked, perhaps. Yeah, one yeah, might stressed say. out and whatever. <laughs> but but uh, so you know, but uh, we can put that all aside and look at it through a soft rose-colored glasses. <laughs> yeah, oh, there yeah. you go, soft uh, filters, if you will. Yeah. So this movie, it does so that the. the quick premise of this film is that a struggling film director or not a struggling film director but a halfway successful film director i would even go so far as to say very successful well by the size of his house absolutely. yeah 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 and how much the studio execs want to keep want to make him happy he's uh, he's he's making money his pictures make money he, he's like the golden boy of the production company it seems which you know can be a seat easily lost but right and so he but he he wants he's just gone through a decade of the great depression and he wants to he yearns to tell this story of true pathos and this true like a true story of human condition yeah so he he sets out to make this tale that he read this book that he read uh the studio execs try to convince him not to make it and do the one they want him to make which is another comedy and the way they do that is by telling him that he's too out of touch that he was a he was raised in boarding schools and he come, he's born with a silver spoon. So what does he know about struggle? Um, to which he comes up with the harebrained scheme that this whole, the crux of the whole rest of the movie uh, rests on, which is that he's going to dress up like a down, downtrodden, poor person, a, a tramp, a, a they tramp. Call it. which and, apparently uh, was because they were worried about the British not be agreeing with the term hobo or, or oh, interesting. was it hobo or? There was, anyways, the the common phrase at the time for people who were homeless, uh, they were worried that it was going to get censored from the British uh, release, so they changed it to Tramp. See, and I always felt Tramp felt right for the mouths of these characters because they're in the film business, and Charlie Chaplin is the biggest movie star in the world, even in 1941. Yeah, yeah. And his famous character is the Tramp. Um, there you go. So, uh but and and this I guess I'm sorry I shouldn't say that like that is why they changed that name but they were they were worried about hobo being a term that wouldn't be accepted so they avoided using that term when talking about them whether or not tramp was specifically because of that or not I don't know but yeah I don't know um but I I was going to say that um this is also a, was a bit of a theme at the time there's a bunch well not a bunch but there's a quite a few movies around this era that is rich people like playing poor and to to understand that like my man godfrey and is that what that big butler spiel is about because I, that uh, butler spiel was vicious so i actually wrote that down and i, I want to re- read that out because it's that awesome but uh, i do think so 
I guess what I wanted to get to before we get into this thing, and uh, we'll be uh, saying the talking about the whole movie here, but um, is that the ending of this film was I used to only take it in the in the one way, which is the like what we what you had already discussed the um, that our entertainment, even light fare, is important because everyone needs escape and everyone needs a place where they can just forget their troubles and laugh or be mentally diverted to something else for a short time. And I, and as I discussed with you way back in my the introduction episode when I came on this podcast, I, I have a very romantic idea of film and a rom- very romantic idea of this medium being a very important medium because of the countless number of people that tell this one idea, but it's also is because of the way it touches lives of people and it, it can get into places that um, other things can't. Uh, other people even can't. Well, yeah, but, uh, but, uh, and, but other mediums, right? Visual, visual content is now, I would like, it's it's even though you, you, without language it's still like there's universal stuff in this movie that Th- there's something inherently connective about being able to watch humans do things and and you know we are built to empathize and when we see visually people doing things and experiencing things and and going about their their you know stories we connect with it really strongly i think so it was in the study of this the, for this program that this time that i really started seeing the other side of this film okay so there's the one that one thing that is essentially you don't have to beat us down with messages and talking about what the world all the problems in the world in your in your film or in your content that you're creating you can you can just make us laugh you can just be silly you can just be stupid but then equally this movie says a lot about society and says a lot about classism and what's interesting is i do think it actually does a fairly balanced lens it it just shows you things more than having characters then make comments about the things you've just seen there's the lot like the long uh the long part montage music montage where um where sullivan and uh and the girl are together and going to all these uh camps and workhouses and that kind of thing church soup kitchen thing and, and yeah and because it's the great depression there's that many homeless that there's been somewhat social programs set up so they can get a hot shower but it's not a, like it's not great conditions and you're naked around a bunch of strangers and and then at night when you're sleeping it's like a rat's nest where everything's bundled up and legs are intertwined and that kind of thing and so that's a like that's a really interesting and for like a a laugh riot comedy very odd kind of like to thematically show um but the other thing they show is these people are can be happy there's moments of joy there's moments of kindness and tenderness and that these people are human and re- Require our care and um and i think that's really important but it so to have this movie be like oh you know uh, f- fart jokes are noble it, and uh, you don't need a message <laughs> like that's important but also it's interesting that that then comes in a movie that i find is really uh, like has a like pretty strong message about 
about social care. Well, that w- that was one of the things that I I thought a lot about when watching and I've watched it I think four times because we had this break and and whatever I had a lot more time to sort of go through and 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 I still even with all of that it's it's interesting that I I don't always know what to make of it but the fact that it is a movie that on the surface is touting like this idea of simple art and simple humor and like just pure escapism and and talking about the value in movies that don't make big bold statements and big you know uh uh, moralistic judgments and and the fact that uh i a lot of places i've read have said that preston talked about this movie as being his response to all of the big preachiness that came in comedies and how the modern comedies he or the not modern but of his contemporary comedy films that he was seeing and how they were moving away from just the pure fun and going into being rather preachy and and heavily moralistic and and yet at the same time it itself like you said it it is a big deep statement about all these societal things all of these problems and and I think I agree I think that the balance is struck really well where the humor and the comedy and the lightheartedness and the the happy messaging of it is well proportioned with moments of somber um i guess deep and important sort of conversation that is necessary to have um but it 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 struck me as very odd that that would be the choice he made even though it did work well yeah um and going to some of like the thing we've referenced a couple times is one of the first um big speeches moralistic speeches giving given in this thing and that's another thing i wanted to say is that he really um stretches characters out in a modern day movies seem to want to combine like instead of having 10 characters that say two lines each have two characters that say isn't isn't that first scene that first big like speech isn't that like a 10 page diatribe that he wrote out that it happens in four and a half minutes or whatever yeah yes it, exactly and it was supposed to be shot over two days and they apparently got it in like a half a two day. takes yeah it took them two takes a half an hour they and it was all in a bet the the camera operator bet him that he couldn't do it in one take while he was going around trying to figure out where the cuts were going to be and where everything was going to be and he's like all right we're doing it where he talked to his his cast and whatever and the whole thing was done in two takes amazing uh, because it's a really great speech and that and that or that uh, really great dialogue scene amazing and, blocking amazing dialogue amazing yeah. per, just bet I, I don't want to say best scene of the movie but like it's a heavy hitter for an opening scene and and well it's and it's not the opening scene there's that cold open yeah and that's what but i wanted to bring that up because that's a really interesting um part because this movie we don't you know trailers didn't exist when this movie came out maybe maybe a little bit but television wasn't a thing in 1941 so we or at least not in that many homes um so it's not like you sold things as like you had to say this is a comedy starring these people directed by this person you like from this studio that you've seen movies from before and that's how you sold movies back then which is why stars had so much power. And, and it's why we do movies the way we do today is yeah. because of that but, star power but system. So the, the, when, we did, when I was doing my research, I, re- I read a lot that this had mixed reviews at the time, 
uh, apparently film critics did it was like fairly well received from film critics but the general audience gave it mixed reviews but i could see that being a thing if you were like if you were one of the down and depressed people or whatever at the time and you walk into a movie expecting a comedy and then it starts with this really cool darkly lit chase on a train that ends with two people dying and falling off of a train um i could see how that like not a lot of modern comedies would start with a action sequence that has n- absolutely almost zero to do with the rest of the movie and then a really long discussion about like the meaning of film and the meaning of movies and like this heavy discussion about art and what it's meant to do uh, all along the same line is like a you you know they say today that you have to you have to hook an audience in the first five minutes well the first five minutes of this film are a different movie than the rest of it well, in a lot of I, ways yeah except i do think that first discussion is the entire mo- like i think that f- first discussion they talk they they talk about every point that the movie is then going to make it, uh, yeah that's true I, I mean it's it's done slightly poetically in that it's not the exact dialogue to match it's but a tonally it, different movie I but guess. no no no. and but i think you're right i think this movie's three movies all right, all right i'm ready for this I, well i think this movie is like a slapstick comedy for like a good portion of the first act and that kind of thing and then and some of the second the start of the second act and then i think it just gets into like a real road trip movie like a yep, real hobo yep, yep. on the road movie and then the third act is like a film noir, um, not film noir necessarily, but like, um, but the, like the, it ma- is. the man in the wrong situation, like the, that well, Hitchcockian figure that is like mistaken identity. And then your whole world is turned upside down and you're chased by people that you shouldn't, you, you know, you're an innocent person, but it's the wrong identity. And, and that's kind of, except not because he goes to jail for a crime he actually commits He's just concussed or whatever at the time he commits the crime. And and there's like there's definitive moments where it changes pace or tone and you can kind of sense. And like when as soon as you said film noir, I sort of like I hadn't thought about that kind of thing watching it. But like when he's handing out the money to people through the dark streets and he's just like you almost don't see his face ever. It's him walking from like the waist down feet, shadows, ground like it's very and I was pondering over why that was done and i'm sure there's a lot of reasons discussion about like you're seeing him moving but you're seeing like the people below him not him and he's whatever but like it's also a very noirish sort of like he's being followed and it's foot 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 well even the lighting changes it becomes a lot more night work um even to the to the man who robs him getting killed by in the train yard and even the day stuff is darker and more contrasty yeah like they're on the bank of the river or whatever and it's there's shadow play behind them and that kind of thing it's it's yeah it's a certainly interesting it's almost as if um like sturgis was like the in in his character saying i want to make something other than comedy he's like see i can do silent movie slapstick but i can also do on the road this but i can also do drama if you want drama and it's kind of it's almost like him trying to prevent himself being typecast as just the light-hearted comedy guy well i don't yeah i don't I mean, like not that that was necessarily a thing but no you know. no no but i mean i just it's just that it's almost um in his takedown like he's 
this is like this whole movie plays as a large satire of Hollywood. And those would have been fairly big movie structures at the time. Like uh, film noir was a big film structure film, uh, like 1937, 38 is when film noir kind of came into its own, I think. And then, um, um, so he was, he's kind of, and, and obviously we're just on the, we're on the heels. Uh, we're a decade removed more or less of silent pictures. So, and I uh, mean, t- two decades, it was 1921, I think, right. That the, the jazz singer came out, which was the first sound talkie, I guess they would have called it. Yeah. I thought it was a little later than that. It was, but it yeah. was like, nine, I thought it was 1921. I thought it was 27, but or, that's okay. I don't, it doesn't, you know, let's look it up. You're right, 1927. I was wrong. There you go. You're correct. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I guess 15 years ish, 14 years removed from from sound pictures, uh, uh, or from silent fit films to sound pictures. And I think so. I think he's just kind of playing on Hollywood tropes. And I think he's playing. He's like he's talking about class, but I think he's also using Hollywood, the cla- like the hierarchy of Hollywood, also to describe class right down to the to the end like the way he his character gets out of this whole situation is the most white privileged like by modern standards the most white privileged thing he goes uh they would never lock me up for an argument with a train uh, employee i'm a director they don't do that only a white dude could be confident enough to accuse himself of being a murderer yeah. to get out of murder or yeah. assault like well that uh, but the, but he's he's so aware of his pri- like that's the thing is this character like a lot of people i think would have played this character as like uh, completely unaware of their privilege and he is kind of at the start and then but soon as he's made aware that he's privileged which again second scene of the movie big long reign where two far more privileged people than he (laughs) tell him how privileged he is yeah and it's and it's but it's also that like that it anyway so it does a lot of like i think it it brilliantly kind of circles around on itself a lot through this movie it's really appropriate that a guy who knows nothing but Hollywood and the the life of a of a star would use that world as his basis for how the world works and as a uh, hierarchical structure for everybody else's. Like it, it just it's yeah. Every piece of it is so well connected. But this is so. This is a comedy, and in the middle of like five minutes in, after he's tried on his tramp uniform for the first time, his butler comes in. And his butler says this, and I won't say his side of the dialogue, but his butler says, I've never been sympathetic to the caricature of the poor and needy, sir. Uh, The subject isn't an interesting one, for the poor uh, already know about poverty, and only the morbidly rich would find um, the topic glamorous. Rich people and theorists, who are often rich people, uh, think of poverty as uh, in the negative as they lack the as in a lack of riches as a disease might be the lack of health but it isn't this um poverty isn't the lack of uh anything but the positive but a positive plague virulent in and of itself and contagious like cholera with a with filth criminality vice and despair as a few of its symptoms it has uh it is to be stayed away from even for the purpose of study it is to be shunned. A really, a really vicious 
and and I I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what that was because on one hand it felt like a butler to a rich guy who in and of himself probably makes good money is in a decent place of privilege but not uh not at the same level so I was I I was grasping a lot to figure out if that was him being angry slash disgusted by poor people or if it was him being trying to be respectful in his own kind of way of it i didn't think he was disgusted at all i think he was disgusted that someone would want to fake being poor that poor that poverty isn't something he would wish on his worst enemy and it, it brings an irony into it in the sense that it's a movie about poor people that is being marketed and targeted towards an audience of poor people where a bunch of rich people it kind of exists and talk about how awful it is to be poor and i don't know there's just this sort of strange irony to the whole yeah but i also with that butler thing um he follows that up it should be shunned and he says well it sounds like you've studied it and then he says not by choice or something to that effect being that i came from poverty that blew right over my head and then and then when he leaves the room (laughs) uh sullivan says he gets gruesome every once in a while. <laughs> and then his other like footman or whatever, I don't know what that guy's position is, assistant or whatever, says, he's always reading books, sir. I loved that line and, so much. And um, that condemnation of like of the privileged people of the underclass educating themselves and reading and having thought like original thoughts and ideas or 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 ideas about their station and stuff is very like, is it like it was a there's little bit of like that little bit of biting commentary and satire falls all the way through this. I, 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 that actually, I wanted to say that moment was really prominent for me in one of the, one of the things I kind of noted about a difference between the way modern comedy is done and the way these kinds of comedies are done. And I, I can't say that it's my experience of comedies of the older period are a little bit lacking, but something that stuck out to me is that nothing in this movie, like it doesn't call attention to the humor. Modern comedies seem to be very overt about their humor and they seem to be like, they call attention to it. They make, uh, they make it feel like the movie is kind of laughing along with you a little bit, but like watching through this movie to me, I felt like there was a lot of jokes that were like in presentation and on the surface, very level and very flat. And like the movie was not, and, and you could, if you didn't think about it, you could miss a joke because it wasn't spoon fed to you like we are today. Well, that always reading books, sir, is That's, a great, yeah. like it's a great button. And I laughed out loud. I laughed out loud, but I also thought, thought that like, if I wasn't thinking about it or if I wasn't really paying full attention, like I wouldn't have noticed that it was a joke. I, I do find, I mean, I think you're right about that. I just think that there's a, like a lot of jokes layered in there. And, um, but I do think they also do draw attention at certain points to the humor the slapstick is pretty. the slapstick is very on the nose obviously but also later there are some lines where they then give like a like a a kazooie type set like there's little sound effects noises that they <laughs> right, add in okay, on yeah, certain lines yeah. that are like wah, wah, and like um, a little bit uh buster keatony or, or yeah Japanese. and to the point where i mean he loves he obviously loves um and this is a seems like a theme with a lot of comedians that i admire is he loves misunderstanding he loves mishearing as well yeah, yeah, he yeah. finds a lot of, he seems to find a lot of humor 
in the couple of movies that I've seen by him or the three movies I've seen by him, there there are often scenes where a character will say something and another character will say what and repeat a very similar thing back, but different in meaning and tone. And this happens a lot and he does it. He seems to do it. And it, it's that it's that fun little banter dialogue. But on uh, on the land yacht, uh, there are two characters. The lighthouse keeper part. What's that? The lighthouse keeper part. Um, Anyways, go I on. Don't, just oh, it, I, I have a question about that after. In the bar, like in the bar on the in the land yacht, <laughs> they uh, there's two of the producer type people sitting beside each other, and there's a conversation, and one saying something on the phone, and between all three, the person on the phone who we don't hear, and those two, there's like this repeated, um, and I think he calls it like hook and something dialogue. Um, I so, have it right here if you'd like right, me to sure look yeah get get the name of it uh, but it's he has this so he puts a word in dialogue and then has the next person kind of latch on to that word and play with the, and so he's constantly playing with language in that and it also sound it gives it a rhythm that sounds really pleasant at least to my ears it, it was, sounds very Sorkin-esque it was just called days. a hook or the hook right it, and it was it was pioneered by him as a method of, of building dialogue so that you didn't have to have so much extra in each of the you just like one word or one idea gets latched on and carried over there's an example when I was I was watching some stuff on it about one of his other movies that I can't think of which one where there's a bunch of people going on a train and the train's going by and as the camera goes from person to person it goes from conversation to conversation and each conversation has an idea or a word from the one before but is unrelated yeah and it provides and that yeah it's it's like it's there's hooks and then it loops kind of thing so it's yeah it's uh it's a really cool technique and it really is pleasant for the listener um to hear yeah yeah it works very well and and i i i'm thinking i think of the same or maybe not quite. I'm trying to remember. Anyways, there's the the two guys are sitting. Two of the producer type guys are sitting talking to each other, and in the background behind them, there's somebody on a telegram. And after the conversation in the front is finished, the guy on the telegram says something about the wrong number, turns around and asks about like a lighthouse keeper's daughter, and then the producer says something else. Like this whole like they they're having two different conversations. And none of it seems to have any semblance of relation to what's going on. But it reads like it's supposed to be funny. And I don't know why the lighthouse keeper's daughter. Is it funny because lighthouse keepers probably don't have daughters because they live by themselves? Or like, what's oh, the... Oh, like, see, I don't, I, don't I don't even remember hearing lighthouse. I just thought he said... I thought he, I thought I heard him say, ask about her, his daughter or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. So he talks about the lighthouse keeper from an island. He says something about asking about his daughter. And then he repeats, I said the lighthouse keeper from whatever island and then goes back to his tele or his like anyways oh, i don't know it's misunderstood dialogue that's clearly meant to be a joke but i just like had a hard time following what was supposed to be funny about it oh which is the only time i've had that i had that experience interesting um yeah there's i i thought there was um i the humor in that came from both the rhythm for me but also a, a man asking another man to ask another man about his daughter was that I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in creepy, but fun, like, cause it's out of place and that's what humor is often is the incorrect, thing. the incorrect context for a thing. Yeah. Or a, yeah. Yeah. Another thing I like uh, that he does with the class system to kind of subvert the class system or subvert the ideas of the class system being like with noble, uh, 
higher stationed people being the intelligent ones and people in the lower stations being the idiots and the serfs or whatever is he puts he puts like in the same way he did with the butler he puts um interesting kind of corrections and and uh almost exposition in the mouths of unexpected people like the driver uh like at one point there's a secretary taking down notes uh that this journalist is writing about this story and he's you know he's poetically describing the walks the, in the shallow, shadow of the valley of adversity yeah and then she's like what and then the the driver explains the like the and not the analogy but like how the the whole yeah he like just, artistic poetic part of that statement yeah he, he she he thinks she's asking what as in what was that i guess and so he describes the like literary definition for a very educated and like well well thought out sort of analysis of this one particular line yeah and it's just it's just interesting that it happens throughout the movie that like someone who is like a what you would at first glance think is like a member of society who's who's maybe uneducated because they're poor or whatever and then they give them he gives them this great line of dialogue and that kind of thing um the other thing um I, that i liked i guess is that this the 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 thing starts and in that off the top uh that scene you've referenced and i've referenced but that long one shot uh when he says i want to tell this story about the human condition and then the they always interject they have this bit where they're interjecting but with sex or but with a little sex (laughs) i love that but with a little sex and yes but with a little sex and apparently apparently that that uh, scene had a big like people in Hollywood had a problem with it, and so did the MPAA. And the MPAA couldn't ban it or anything because it didn't say anything wrong. But they, they it was hated. criticizing. Well, it was the criticizing, the, but it was also selling that. Tell it was also one of the first references apparently in film to the idea that we need to sell to sell a movie. You have to give a little sex. You have to sex sells. Oh. This this is like one of the first places that idea was ever put forth for the public. And then later there's that whole pool scene where she's sitting in the, uh, the girl, which Veronica Lake is sitting at the pool with the robe and her like legs out. I was reading that that's was one of the more promiscuous scenes in Hollywood at the time as well. Well, and you look at this movie and it really is really, really tame except for the violence again, which is also speaks to kind of where we still are with as, in reference to nudity versus violence in ratings today. Um, but the, I do like that he, so in that conversation, he keeps saying that thing about sex or we need, we'll do this, but with sex, we'll do this, but with sex. And then he says, okay, I'm going to make this comedy. No, I'm going to make, Oh brother, where art thou? And I'm going on the road to make it. Uh, but first I'm going to take 10 cents. And he tells them his, his plan. And then sure enough, he goes out on the road by himself at first. He has everyone following him. Uh, there's a big bunch of slapstick stuff. Uh, he goes the, to the a, tank, the, the whippet tank driver kid who's yeah. 13 and racing around in a so, race in a, car. Yeah. Insane. With a speedometer that's it's drawn, drawn on, on a piece of wood. <laughs> um, and it's a very funny bit. And it like it made me laugh. And there's there is a, like there's a really weird thing. And I don't know culturally because I think this was like um, a stereotype and I don't know whether it's in there because it's it's just what you did or if it if he's making fun of the stereotype, but there's the black chef. And I think it was like a thing back in slapstick things that 
people of dark skin would get white makeup or white paint or white in this case batter on his face and that was like a trope that came up a lot Um, something that i thought was interesting about that and this is a very brief little statement but like apparently the naacp secretary walter white wrote a letter to preston sturgis about how impactful this movie was on him and he apparently congratulated sturgis for his uh, dignified and decent treatment of negroes yeah which that, i'm that's mainly about the last scene or the scene the, r- right the film yeah scene. yeah the the, ch- the southern church scene yeah yeah versus i guess the slapstick part because yeah. they all kind of get the slapstick but the sh- the black chef gets the worst of it he well yeah it's it, but it, it, and it. It, when i read that and read that same thing it was specifically about that scene oh, that okay, he was writing okay. about because and while it doesn't it doesn't do anything other than show a black southern church, the fact that it wasn't showing them in a negative like that's how crappy. it was like positive and happy and it gave them some kind of agency which well and it also shouldn't be a standard for praise per they se. They are they are the first characters who are actually giving true uh, empathy and care to this downtrodden group of people and also the people who really are what the moral hinges around and what changed uh sullivan's idea about what he like he decides to make a comedy instead of oh brother where are they at the end because of that scene and that those black people and, in that and they're allowed yeah and they're allowed a little and those the the whole idea i mean uh, this is very much through a modern lens but the whole idea of them say, like before they even come in he's he's they sing that um slave song the let my people yeah. go yeah yeah um which then connects like the chain gang criminals and the prison system to these people who are uh fairly freshly removed from slavery themselves and so that's kind of like an interesting take on what we would modern day would say the modern the prison industrial complex and and it's and it's yeah well the the work you know speaking of that i guess um the the work camp part was interesting and we talked a little bit about this before but i remember it striking me as being very um beyond what i imagined something would that would be done in in sort of like the north american continent as far as criminals but uh you know i got the very like oh this feels like a soviet you know gulag kind of but yeah i i I don't uh, in i mean again i wasn't around or anything in the early 40s but as far as i can say from depictions i've seen this is very this was very common right up until like i think the 70s or 80s to have and i even modern day they yeah i guess i'm just not really well connected i don't know anybody who's gone to jail nor very well or like Fair. seen a lot of, but and also this is canada not the states it's an entirely different process there but you know and i guess that's part of uh the the thing with watching these older movies to wrap that back is that like you have to kind of expect that there's a different viewpoint being taken when these stories are being told and yeah it's, it's prepared for the treatment of like, different people the way they are I like guess. when you said that gulag thing earlier to me before off off mic um i like it was never something i picked up because just because there's i've watched movies from this era and they've had this type of thing in them 
even even in Shawshank, there's the chain gang thing, and they're digging holes and digging things. And it it cool just felt Luke over the top and, with like the sheriff and the way that he talked and treated them, and like it was like I mean di- yes, but, except for really because uh, did he treat them that badly? I he was no like he, like he he he. There's they no beating special, them. They make special mention that he lets them go to this thing where other they ones put, don't. But he puts them in a steam box. Yeah, like, no, but that's fairly... I co- like, I think that was like a common punishment for these things. It just shows where I sit in life that it like came across to me as something that didn't feel like it was of the... I don't, area, think, but... I don't think he's a hero <laughs> no I, but i don't i don't think i don't think he's the like i don't think he's the black hat villain that and he's definitely like he's a strict he guy but on from the ground man but from like, his, he's gotta be <laughs> but from his point but from his point of view he this guy is a criminal who assaulted like a person who was working for the railroad quite viciously assaulted as well yeah, yeah. and um and then and had no remorse pretended to ha- like from his point of view doesn't like didn't didn't show any remorse didn't say his name didn't like and then he gets at the end of it all he gets away scot free anyways despite the actual legitimate crime that he's committed and and there's they also have just as the prisoners are all going inside for some reason he shows an aside of that same prison warden guy or or whoever foreman or whatever talking to presumably somebody involved in the church although it was a white man but he's like how's your wife and this kind of thing and oh i thought that that was the that was the guy who dropped them off that was like the guy from the court or whatever oh sure okay well either way but he's like he was chatting friendly and asking people like it just he's a nice guy to people who are not criminals i guess yeah and and i guess that's all i would say and yeah and and but i think that is the point is to say that like look he's this could be your neighbor but then also look how badly we treat these people who might be innocent or might be whatever or you know they're still human beings after all this shouldn't be something we do i i think he's make i i legit think it's a social commentary about the prison system which also is maybe why i felt like it was a bit hyperbolic of of reality because i knew that it was i felt that it was meant to be a critique and so i felt like maybe he went hyperbolic with it to accentuate the criticism um, but the more we've talked about this now, the more I feel like I'm entirely incorrect and that's just the way it was. And, and, uh, I shouldn't I, really be surprised by that. Yeah. I, I don't think it was that. Yeah. I think it, if anything, this would have been on a tamer side of things. I would think from what, from what I've read and seen in media from this period. Well, I'm glad I've, I've been gifted a life that I don't need to pay attention or worry about these kind of things. <laughs> so I, I, I know we haven't touched a lot on the cine of this movie yet and something i actually wanted to bring up earlier when you were talking about the multiple genres and things something that i thought was interesting is that sturgis has said well i don't know if he specifically said exactly what i'm about to say but like he is known for being a person who makes movies that are hinged on their dialogue his his movies are about the things people say how and why they say them and less about the actual uh cinematography and 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 technical parts of the movie it's kind of more the camera is used as a tool for the audience to be able to see and hear what the actors are doing and saying and so a lot of the like stuff that was done i feel like is maybe more a dp choice in some ways perhaps but like it's really interesting and it leaves the movie 
it leaves our conversation a little less rich in the discussion of Cine. But well, uh, but I do think uh, this is a opportunity to discuss this because there are visual filmmakers and there are story and dialogue filmmakers and by and this and i'm by no means comparing these two uh as as far as like ability or whatever but um uh growing up kevin smith would make movies and he got slammed a lot by critics because they they found his movies boring because it was like two shot cut to two shot cut to single cut to single because it was just about the dialogue and it wasn't so much about the interesting camera moves and this movie does that right down to the point that I think the slapstick stuff is shot pretty horribly. I think there's some um, really bad camera framing in general, like a lot of weird cuts to center framed, like the Butler speech where it cuts from like a two shot to him being center framed and his eyeline kind of being off, but it's for us to get in close for the butler to give his speech. Oh, I didn't bump on that at all. But it just with the slapstick stuff, it's he play it plays a lot like um, medium one one or two button kind of mediums, and that um, and that like that's a weird place to play slapstick. Usually, it's like cowboy or wider um, on, for slapstick because you want to see the whole. You want to see limbs kimbo. You want to see things. And he shoots it very close. He shot it very close up, and it just the and they're just bouncing around or face falling into batter or whatever. But it's it's very it's shot like his dialogue is shot, except it's not dialogue. So I found that really weird because he is a very smart guy, and he's obviously very perceptive, and he he would have grown up watching silent films. So to have it, it almost seems like he's not even thinking about it. Like he's using the camera not in any kind of in-depth way, but just as a tool. We see slapstick in wides when it's necessary, when they're falling out of the train or whatever. We see wider shots because that's where he needed to be to get the shot. But it feels like it's not he doesn't think hard about what the camera's doing. He thinks hard about what the actors and the and the dialogue is doing and then puts a camera somewhere to capture that as mo as clearly as possible yeah I, gu- I guess it could be as simple as that i just i just it just seemed it seems as if it was an intentional mistake in my head oh interesting okay. and i just don't or if it wasn't intentional it seems the most sloppy thing he did in the movie i mean and the fact that him being you know as influential as he was at the time and as in the good books of the producers and the budget and things you'd think that somebody somewhere would have along that line caught that and been like hey maybe we should fix this you know they watch the dailies and they're like this is awkward let's reshoot that and i guess since we're talking about the physical comedy uh we didn't bring it up but veronica lake in an incredible thing was six months six to eight months pregnant while shooting this six months at the start it took about two months to shoot so inevitably and when you go back and look at it, so all of the stunt work or all of the wides, her jumping off the train, for instance, into his arms, that's a stunt actor. And then she just does that last roll off his body for the for the tight two. Um, but they h- hide her stomach. She's sitting a lot or she's holding a coat on her arm in front of her stomach. And as well as the amazing, great Edith Head. Yeah, uh, I mean, we should just take a second to recognize that Edith Head is... A phenomenal costume designer. If you're watching films from this era at all, she's pro- she probably did it or had some fingers in it. She's one of the most famous and well-known costume designers, so much so that The Incredibles 
gave her a a a bit of an honorary uh, position as Edith, the costume maker for the superheroes, is meant to be sort of her. It has her look. It has her apparently her way of speech and things. Yeah, she was a short woman, I think Jewish, uh, and like had this kind of short bowl cut kind of black hair with big glasses, yeah. and she would. So very much the Incredibles character is extremely completely based completely built off. Yeah, of her. yeah, yeah. Um, and she's brilliant, and she's prolific, and if you like. I mean, I, if anybody's listening to this who's in loves costume design, you're already aware of her. But if for some chance you aren't or you want to learn more about costume design, she's where you start. You, you need to know her. Like, the design, like, the camera work does a good job of hiding her belly when uh, uh, for a lot of it. But there's there's a lot of shots where it should be very obvious, and yet somehow she managed to build costumes that completely hit it while still being very like on one of the docks they had mentioned that the hobo clothing became very like was very or the tramp clothing that uh edith was picking out uh was really useful because of how loose fitting and everything hangs and then the fact that she's also veronica lake is playing a boy um she's got her hair tucked up in her cap and she's playing a boy so her, ha- her clothes is hanging off of her even more and uh, uh, yeah, so they were, but brilliant choices all, all the way along um, that they were able to make. Um, but on the cine side, the uh, there were a few few shots that I actually thought were pretty cool, uh, for, like for this era. I mean, besides just the big one shot that was a masterpiece of blocking at yeah. the beginning, which we've talked about endlessly. Right, but uh, the so for some reason. It's it feels it actually felt weird, but it but standalone it was a very cool shot, which is the the shot of the church at night, the black southern church, and then it's the prisoners walking in the foreground. So you see their chained feet from like the hips down. Felt like it was right out of the thing or something. Yeah, it felt thing. like it felt like like it would be. It felt like it should be a setup for a horror thing. Is what it like like a zombie Day of the Dead. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But it was still regardless of that, just a very cool shot. Um, now, d- did that fit in the movie? Not kind of in that the, but not really. It, it fit the the latter portion where we're talking about where we were talking earlier about where how it, it went darker. into like yeah. dark noiry kind of feeling. So it fit in that regard. But that whole change of pace can be argued one way or another to have not fit in the movie as a whole anyways. But it certainly worked with what was happening in the story at the time. Right. And then um, there, uh, it's actually a few of the wides, the, the wide establishers, the, the, the tableaus they build in those are actually, there's a few of them that are really nice. Through the scene where they're walking by the lake, yeah. for example. And I mean, something that stood out to me throughout the whole thing but especially that shot where they're tracking them as they walk along the lake. Uh, I mean, the clouds in this movie. And I, I mean, I just, I'm a big sky person. I love, I love the, the way clouds look. And I think, it, I think it's very beautiful. So it stands out to me when I watch movies anyways. But like the sharpness and the, the I don't know. It was just like an impressive feat that I was curious to see, find how they did. And I couldn't track it down. And they, um, I'm not positive uh, i don't have any answers for that i didn't really look, look into it but I, um, I will say they used very uh very studio style lighting of the time there was a like strong uh, hard backlight and um soft light on both of the actors faces 
and they kept it except for that kind of those film noir type sequences they everything was really well lit not a lot of contrast um so yeah it, it's it was a fine film for sin for for the time i don't think there was anything true truly groundbreaking there was there was something interesting before we leave that conversation there was something interesting and they didn't do it at least as far as i know they didn't do it for the rest of the movie it was just this one-off little easter egg that was hidden i didn't see it the first three times i watched the movie and then i like uh had checked out some uh other video on youtube that should have written down what it was and i don't remember unfortunately but they pointed it out and i didn't see it until then but as they're walking by the lake there's a moment where there's legs hanging out of a tree that i did not see because it looked like branches and i was like oh man that did is this like a homeless person hanging themselves in a tree here like is that the level of dark we're going with in this or like i saw that too i didn't i did see that while watching it i didn't um I don't think I remember it in the first, like all my old viewings. So maybe it's the like Blu-ray on the 4K, whatever that I, like, because I watched, I didn't watch this on the app. It I has a bit this, more played definition, maybe. Yeah, and so, but I I saw the legs there, but then the where they had just come from, there was like a lot of homeless people sitting on pallets and sitting different. So my non-cynical head said it was a guy just sitting up in a tree. My cynical head said it was a guy who killed himself, and my non-cynical head thought maybe the same thing. Yeah, so I, because I also quickly went, oh, that's uh, that's really dark. If that's because there was a, when a growing up, there was like rumors that in the background of like Wizard of Oz, you can see someone hung themselves in one part. Anyway, I hadn't heard about that. There was like all these. This was before the internet. People had to amuse yeah. themselves in yeah, some yeah. fashion, so they made up things like this. But some of it, I think, is true. Uh, but there was so. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it would be weird if those two characters just walked by someone who was dead, uh, didn't, didn't address it, yeah. and then kept yeah. walking and then kind of had a slightly romantic moment. Uh, <laughs> Not that far away. The other thing I wanted to say that for the time, I think uh, it didn't get, so maybe it wasn't because it didn't get brought up in a lot of the research that I looked at. But at the time, I would, like from what I remember watching, this is a, a man who's has an estranged wife because he married her for tax reasons. And then yeah. she's essentially blackmailing him for all of the difference because she's aware and we'll never get a divorce and he can't get a divorce because she won't ever accept a divorce. And But then they allow the whole relationship to build w- with that sort of Damocles hanging over it. And she even finds out, like Veronica Lake's character finds out fairly early on that he has a wife. And still they allow that relationship to build and build. And then because of the way the movie ends, he's going to be able to get a divorce because she's then got remarried after she thought he was dead. Which, like, the implication, of course, is that the business manager who put them together was kind of, like, in with her the yeah. whole time. Well, he's, then he, he's she, in the double bed beside her when she picks up the lamp and shatters yeah, it on his head. Yeah, because he's the one that she then gets yeah. remarried to. Exactly. and But she's now lost her cash cow and whatever. Um, their relationship, uh, uh, like as man and woman is like slightly adulterous the whole time which i feel like for this time this is during the this is the code era so this isn't pre-code so this is them having to like dance like this is it's interesting that you you say that because there's 
there there was part of the the studio produ- production of this one of the things that they requested was that there was no implication of sexual relations or or any kind of like like the idea was it was supposed to be clear that they did not have any actual adulterous relationship beforehand but there's still this sort of like flirty dangerous kind of like we know what we're doing and we we know we can't but like also we can't not we would i would have called this when we when i was more concerned with these type of things when i was younger like and like emotionally cheating or emotionally hooking up with someone yeah yeah right uh, you're, you're sort of having this like affair of of love and attraction that isn't physical but like is is clearly yeah. dancing a line a little bit yeah and it's and it's you know and they can be harmless and it can be whatever but it also is usually the first step to things getting more like things progressing to physical and whatever for in my experience in life and and um and yeah, I know I saw that, like, I mean, I read that there in the whole thing, I never read it sexual between them in the in so far as like physically anything occurring between them. But, you know, she like bound into his lap like hours after meeting him. And, you know, that's like by modern day standards, I would find that like if two people just met and then they're able to like curl up together and they have that freedom to like just be that close to each other it, it was a very a very much more more touchy sort of situation than you would normally get into but i guess there's also that lead up too of like her saying oh well if you were a big casting director or something i would be more and you know the the, the problematic like oh i'm going to pretend to be interested so that you'll give me work and stuff yeah um, i just didn't think that that was it no it and quickly i quickly dismiss that that would be her intention I yeah think. and and i kind of felt that like the conversation of uh, of her being like i don't want anything from you i just think i just want to keep hanging out was like the sort of consensus that you get from the two of them beforehand so i i think that that's true that uh that is not where that's going but there's there I, I, I was grasping at that point to try and find a reason why that they were that touchy so early i guess yeah no and i don't but i didn't it didn't feel out of place to me like because part of it is that the convention is the they have a meet cute there's banter back and forth so now they're to get like in movie parlance they're now together in my yeah head. i guess that that's sort of like part of the language of romance and rom-coms and it's not a genre that i have spent much time in um, but I think that, yeah, I think that that's, that's a fair point that it's kind of become kind of the language. I don't know what it would have been at the time, but I guess maybe. Yeah. There would have been other movies like there. Th- he didn't invent the rom-com. No, no, no. Um, I mean, he wrote a lot of the early ones though. There <laughs> was a lot of the early talky ones. Uh, but no. So, uh, I just, I guess I, this movie has a lot that for when I look back on it for the, t- like, by modern day standards, I feel like people would be like, holy crap, look at all the stuff this movie's saying. And this is in 1941, and they were clever about it, but I feel like it really does... Ahead of its time feels kind of appropriate in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely the right take on it. Yeah, I mean, we. Uh, I don't know if we wanted to talk a little bit about the influences and how far-reaching they have. I know we briefly mentioned, obviously, the Coen's impact or interest in uh with their their oh brother where art thou being a movie they made based on the name with 
a lot of scenes that either connect to or directly homage this movie's events. But I think that movie more than most of their movies, although a lot of their movies have quick pithy dialogue, that movie especially really tried to capture the like the rhythm of a of a Preston Sturgis movie. And you're right. So the yeah, the little kid in the car picking them up, the jumping on the train scene, it happens in both the movies. The chain gang stuff. The chain gang stuff. Uh, I it feels like that like oh brother where art thou was the Coen brothers sitting down and like being such a fan of Preston Sturgis stealing the name from this movie and then saying let's like make a Preston Sturgis movie that's not a remake of a Preston Sturgis movie and that's it's about the biggest flattery you can give an artist to want to show them the respect of uh, of making a movie in their name and honor without just stealing from and remaking something they've already done. Well, and in reference to something you said earlier that Preston Sturgis, um, people say that he didn't write plot, that he wrote dialogue and the plot serviced the dialogue rather than the dialogue serviced the plot. Um, that's... In a way, that's kind of. I mean, that was more more than I said, much better said than I said it. But yes, (laughs) Um, but that's what the Coen brothers did a bit in in No Brother because O Brother is very much like about the rhythm and the dialogue, right down to the sing like the music. The soundtrack became a massive hit after that movie. I mean, they made like the songs that the Soggy Bottom Boys sing are like huge hits still to this day as their own songs. The the, but the the story the pr- the plot of of O Brother What Thou is, is also loosely based on the Odyssey. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. what they did they were like this is in this in this movie in Sullivan's Travels they talk about O Brother What Thou is a story about the human condition and blah 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 and it's based on a book, and so then they took the like first ever book <laughs> written and then made a like made it the premise or the. Well. the th- the home, the uh, the Iliad comes before the Odyssey, sure. but okay. yes, fair enough. But <laughs> Either way, you under, you know what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. they took a like a classic, then pared it down to what this uh, a classic story about the human condition, and then pared it down to this this movie, and it it just it's got that like meandering. Uh, again, to use that term picaresque, which I've used a lot in the past of of like this idea of a story of people going places of like a story of a journey from point A to point B. It's like it's meandering. It goes places, but at the same time, like doesn't just make a point A to point B. It goes over here and then over there and over there. Right. And in much the same way that this movie does, where like for some reason we have that scene with that crazy uh, widow who's trying to trap uh sullivan in her house and like it has nothing to do with what he's trying to achieve it's just sort of like meant to be taken as he's you know working for a room and uh, you know shenanigans ensue sort of thing so i had a bigger read on that okay all right. so here's my read so he starts out on his trip right and he's going to discover what it's like to be impoverished and that kind of thing and then he runs into those like i, I think so that's after the the he gets in the car with the kid and the first slapstick thing it's sort he of then, his first solo experience so he goes a, up the road a, and he's chopping yeah. lumber to make a little bit of money so that he can mosey on further down the road i thought it was just for the room personally oh it might have been just for the room but either way like that was the back then from film again because i have no experience in real life but the from film again yeah hobos and tramps did things 
favors for people for room or board or a little bit of cash or even traveling i know a guy who went to south america and did mechanic work for people sure. to stay in rooms it so so yeah yeah so i guess maybe less popular nowadays but still happening nowadays but yeah so um but then there, it's very titillating the, the way the women are looking at him and speaking about him, which is... The one woman, specifically. Right. Her sister is sort of judgy about it. Sure, but... It, um, so that's adding a little bit of the sex, you see? Oh. But then, to me, then... then but to, to him, the director, he goes, N- this is the wrong type of sex. No, no, no. So then he's got to get out of there. And then, but where does his journey... He ends up back in Hollywood, starting his journey again... But then where does he start it? He starts it at the diner where he meets, where he meets the, her and yeah. he meets the, the sex, the girl. That's, and then and then he can start his journey officially then. That's he could, he brilliant. couldn't start it till he met her. That's brilliant. Is, and I mean, he literally, there is a line down the road where, or, or not down the road, but before that, was it before that? Anyways, where, where the person is like, oh, well... You know, or no, it's when, when he's driving her in her car and, and he gets pulled over and put in jail because they think he's stolen his own car. And then the, the police officer's like, what does the girl have to do with it? How does she fit in? And he's like, I, I mean, there's always a girl in the story. Haven't you ever been to the movies? Like, you know, like, really? Yeah, I didn't make that connection. But now that you say that out loud, there's pieces. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I found that kind of interesting. And um, but it also to other people that are were massively influenced by Preston Sturgis, so this movie, if you look up the American Film Institute's top 100, it now f- sits at number 61. This movie does? This movie does. Oh, okay. But when that... So that's the 2008 version of that list, I believe. It's been on since then, um, which is also the one that I think switched Citizen Kane and... Um, Vertigo, Vertigo took over. I remember yeah. being in film school when Vertigo overtook citizen kane (laughs) and my (laughs) instructors made a huge deal out of it um but in the pre in the first list i think is like 1997 or something is when they first did or one of the earlier editions of the list uh there was five spielberg movies on there but there wasn't any preston sturgis movies on there so apparently spielberg wrote the head of the american film institute and said if you guys do another list please remove one of mine and put sullivan's travels wow And so then they, so that must have made them revisit Sullivan's travels enough that they went, not only does it need to be in, but it should be that's 61. That's cool. I, yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, I guess that's just another sort of brick in the wall of, of evidence towards, you know, the importance of simpler storytelling, even if, you know, the, the highbrow critics and artists don't necessarily always recognize it. Well, that and it's not just that, but like it just show it goes to show that this this director, this writer is like was a titan, and he he is someone to like go back and look at. If especially, I I like to think that a lot of the listeners of this podcast are interested in film and might on their own uh, pursue it academically in some fashion, whether that's at an institution or not. And um, this is one of the names, I guess, is what I've been trying to get across the whole time that we should you should add to your Rolodex of people to study. And that seems like a really good statement for us to start wrapping up on, unless you've got any more to say. But that uh, I think that summarizes very well the the whole purpose and point of this episode in a way. Um, I did have a little bit more to say. But oh, that's, well, great. Then do... uh, that's fine. Um, no, no, do... no. It just that. Um, 
it was just more about just people like Bill Hader talking about him and talking about. I know you mentioned I should watch that interview. I could not find it anywhere. Oh, I found like when I typed in Preston Sturgis on Criterion, it came up. I typed in Preston Sturgis and Bill Hader, and I got like Bill Hader talking about characters he's played, and oh, what I could not find it anywhere. Anyways, uh, but I just so yeah, just one more thing quickly about people influenced um, Bill Hader. Uh, I just he on the on Criterion uh, the the app, I found a little five minute interview he gave or an answer he gave about Preston Sturgis and his influence on him, and he again like me found Preston Sturgis through the Coens, and then but what I found really interesting about him, because and this is again this is a little bit of a diatribe but the um, when I was coming up in film school we were studying Billy Wilder a little bit. Um, with one directing instructor and that directing instructor said, who do you guys think it would be like the modern day Billy Wilder? And the, the people, the director he put forth was the Coen brothers in that they can kind of jump different genres that in their, their movies in within their movies can exist light and shade that they, they can have both tones in, in their films that things are handled that like dark things are handled comedically and comedic things are handled darkly and, and uh, these are all kind of things you'll find in Billy Wilder's writing. Um, but then this Bill Hader interview, what I found really interesting about him is he made the point that Billy Wilder, his stories are, are that perfect circle, are that perfect uh, Campbellian journey. And they, they, everything fits where it needs to fit. And that's what, that's part of his brilliance. But that with Sturgis, it's very loose. It's very rough. It's not improv because it's it's everything has its beat. But it, it the next the next thing that happens doesn't feel like almost feels like it has no connection to the previous scene. There were there were certainly moments that felt like it was just sort of scenes of things happening in a like sketchy comic like a sketch comedy kind of way that like had the same characters but were somewhat disconnected anyways and i guess i guess what i kind of liked about that idea is that feels very um opposite to what i thought and feel about film most of the time i'm very much more on the billy wilder side that it should be like the perfect circle and that story should be should be perfect um but i am open and i and because i love this film and the lady even a few other movies uh, the Palm Beach story is the one Bill uh, Hader references that the end of the movie, there's like a deus ex machina point where they're like, oh, you're twins and you're twins. And it's just like the biggest feels like almost a huge cop out. But at the same time, it's kind of perfect. And it's uh, so this this loose kind of narrative structure um for me anyways in this film provided me a ton of entertainment that's interesting i I feel like there's you know there's always a rule it was always talked about when i was in in creative writing in university and talking with script writing when i was in film school about you know uh and they talk about a lot of rules in writing but like a big one of course is you know deus ex machina is a thing and like everything should have a point and there shouldn't be something that just happens at the last minute that is unexplainable and just luckily saves them because that's bad writing or whatever but like i think that like any rule in writing it's meant to be broken in the right situations and in the right way and you can have these sort of whimsical beautiful little moments that could be considered bad writing 
if you don't take them in context and look at how they function within the story, but that like you can have that kind of thing happen and work and be done in such a craftful, artful way that it just it just fits with what's happening and and where you are and what's going on in this in the story. Yeah, and I, I've, we, we've made reference to this on almost every episode. But if you're a master of the craft, you get to you get to break these rules. You get to p- play with this type of stuff. Yeah. Learn the rules, know how to use them, and then once you've mastered using them, then you can learn how to break them properly. There's this this famous book by Stephen King called On Writing, where he talks about all the rules for writing and how to write. And uh, I personally didn't read the whole thing, um, but I know people who did, and I've had long conversations with people who did about how all of the rules that are in that book on how to write are rules that Stephen King breaks regularly, <laughs> all the time. But they're the jumping off point. You know how and why those rules are effective and how and why they work, and then you can use them and bend them and break them more effectively to do what you want it to do. Yeah, it's the same with the language of film with things like the line and jumping the line but then you know Kubrick is a master in in The Shining for example he jumps the line a few times and does it for a purpose and if you know what these purposes are um and yeah like you s- said if you know the rules you can break the rules or in this movie like you were talking about of like the slapstick comedy being shot in like a two button medium like nobody does that but maybe there's intention to it and and reason for it that that he you know, and, and in, to me, it worked. It never bumped with me that that was, I never even thought about that until after when you mentioned it. So like, maybe there's, there's intention there that we, you know, that worked. Um, so Ryan, is this a movie that you would revisit, rewatch? Oh yes. I have watched it, like I said, four times, which is more than I've watched for any of our shows so far. That is partially, obviously, because of the the week off we took, but uh, also partially because I enjoyed it so much that I had to watch it twice through, almost just on like the way the way I watch movies is sort of interesting because I'll watch them and I find it very easy to slip into watching mode where I don't really think too critically about them and it's more effort, which I think you'll find is rare amongst people who make movies, but it's more effort to turn on that critical brain because I just love the story so much. And this is one of those movies where I watched it twice and I was like, I don't have enough to say because I just kept getting swept up in like the whimsy and the fun of it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree. This is a, uh, I, this is a movie I revisit every once in a while. Um, I've probably seen it six to eight times in my life and I've watched it with my mom separately to my dad and I've watched it I think with my dad as well and I've watched like I've just I've introduced it to people and and um, I just I really do love the the whole intention the overarching intention of this being that um, uh, well first not to dismiss what you're good at be good at the thing you're good at and be happy well, don't be happy. It's not a command, but try to find happiness in the things you're good at. <laughs> be happy, damn it. Um, and but it's also it's also that that um, there is nobility in entertainment. There is ability in the arts. There is nobility in the in in the striving to provide people with escapism. There, yeah. There's more to there's more to art than just high tier critical hard to understand films that say things about society those movies are important and we need them but just as equally movies that 
don't have a lot to say other than you know commenting on the human condition and providing people enjoyment is is important too well and as we discussed and i think maybe uh, um something this film is saying as well is that comedy can be a great delivery system for a, like a message and i know he was saying in a way that isn't preachy in a way that's what i was about yeah. to say in a way that's not judgy and preachy but in just a like like just the the cam let the audience decide by letting the camera show you the environment and then it's the ultimate show don't tell it's like you know there's that last line at the end where he talks about this cockeyed caravan and and it, it that part seemed to get a lot of bumps from a lot of people who were like this whole movie was a brilliant piece of of cinema that tells a story on the surface that doesn't just beat you over the head with these ideas and artfully and craftfully builds this theme and then you get to that last line and then it's like oh by the way in case you didn't understand whack whack here's the here's the point of this movie and and i i I think i said this off mic not on mic to you but i as i read in my research uh, preston sergis was never truly happy with the end of this movie um in fact the the quote on the at the start of this podcast also is in written form in the start of this movie um uh, except instead of saying podcast it says picture or something uh, <laughs> yeah but um but that was supposed to end, be the ending line of the movie and he was supposed to wax poetically about how spoken by him right not yeah, just written yeah. yes exactly um but that that changed so obviously he he was trying to find something and then he ended up with that uh overlapping laughter of different characters from the film which again when doing research about people online that any reactions negative or positive to this movie a lot or a lot of the modern audiences that have watched this movie found that very creepy as opposed to like wholesome or enjoyable i didn't i didn't think it was creepy i thought it was weird and felt kind of out of place but i got what they were trying to do which is that he's sort of thinking on and speaking of these moments and we're flashing back to like the pieces that were impactful and important to him in his journey getting to where he was i didn't think it was necessary and i don't know that it necessarily added for me what he was going for but i i don't think i found it creepy yeah um yeah i i didn't find it creepy but i also having heard that and then revisiting it i was like oh i guess you can like that i think it's partly because that trope of like uh inserting a another like putting two images over each other has got then got kind of co-opted by horror movies i feel like um or thrillers or something more than this although it happens a few times in this movie they have they should to show a character's thought process they do some flash it happens more than just the laughter i just forget when else i just remember it happening yeah no i can't think of it but i feel like it i remember moments but i can't think right now of what it was either but um okay so you would rewatch it is this uh is this a movie is this a movie that you would seek out or tell others to seek out is it that important um i think that's a two part and or a two component answer i think that I think that it's a really important watch for people who have a sense of disdain for comedy or for lower brow, quote unquote, 
uh, art. I think that, um, I think that like, like, like I've said, there's, there's important parts to both, but I think specifically of the highbrow art community, there is a, a group of people who hold disdain and, or, um, uh, low opinions of, of movies that are not artful and, and and I occasionally suffer from uh, similar like things where I get grumpy with Hollywood about making the same movies over and over again. You know, there's a lot of of, uh, of Avengers weariness or superhero weariness, but but I think that um, especially for me and the the superhero and modern blockbuster thing, like I I have my moments where I'm like, ah, I don't really want to watch that because it's just another movie in the same. You know, it's so I think people who who don't give those kinds of movies a chance maybe would have a lot of benefit from watching this and i think that uh the people who who already love and find enjoyment out of those kinds of movies would just love and enjoy this movie nonetheless so i suppose yes is is the short answer but the long answer would be that for different reasons with different people i suppose yeah yeah i i'm with you there uh that's funny but um i started in one place and talked myself into a different corner <laughs> yeah that's fair um same room though um <laughs> but the the i think that's interesting and i i do think that there is and like comedic actors have long banged this drum um but that comedies don't get the love from awards shows and stuff like that that um that dramas get and because of that comedies are given less reverence by the studios because if they're going to make a prestige movie or a movie they sink a lot of time and effort into it's a movie that's then going to either make a ton of money or 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 win some awards and so it then becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that we don't get great we we don't get many great comedian comedic movies anymore i find because uh because the support isn't there for them and then so you end up getting comedy as an addition in movies uh, like those big blockbusters all those avengers movies have comic bits in them and comedic characters and some are fully like i would say a like thor 3 was a comedy to me it, it was a hundred percent. Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok, was a, a comedy in disguised as a as a superhero movie. Yeah, and so that's it's a shame though that we have to deliver comedy through those forms now, and that comedy themselves can't stand alone. For a while, like ten years ago or whatever, Apatow was running things, and and people seemed to really re- be responding to his style of of comedy, and now that's fallen away, and people are bored of that or whatever. Um, but he was the closest I've seen to getting like actual, like mainstream credit for his films. Yeah. 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 I think, I think overall, um, and to pull a leaf out of this movie's book and have some kind of moral come from this is that we, we think too much of ourselves. And I think about that a lot that we, as people tend to tend to think very very highly of ourselves and place ourselves on this pedestal of of being this amazing thing that like is unparalleled in the universe and whatever but at the end of the day i mean we're we're a bunch of monkeys 
who figured out how to do a lot of crazy stuff. And uh, it's good to be reminded sometimes and be humbled sometimes and remember that the universe doesn't wait on us. And, and I think that in a roundabout way, this movie for me kind of, kind of talks a little bit about that. Okay. And did you find in any of your four rewatches that you weren't in the mood to put it on? You forced yourself. So would you say you have to be in a certain mood to watch this movie? The last time, yes, but only because I had watched it four times in a week and a half. And I feel like I got to it and I was sort of in that vein of just my ADD kind of being like, uh, distracted and whatever, because I'd seen it enough that I wasn't focused on it. But I don't think it's a mood thing. I think it was a, I think it was a, uh, definitely a too much in one week sort of thing. But, um, but as far as mood goes, I mean, I think like whether you're looking for a laugh because you're in a bad place or whether you are in a good place and you want to have like a fun experience, I think it doesn't really matter one way or another. You'll enjoy it when you watch it. Yeah, I agree. I think like this is one of the first, I'm usually a guy who's all about mood with movies and this movie I can put on no matter my state of mind. Um, So I'm a, yeah, I'm a big proponent of any time for this movie. (laughs) Uh, Okay. What about a rating? What did you give this? Ooh, you know, I think I'd give it like four executive filled land yachts. Wow. Wow. I love that, by the way, that they're called land yachts. It's my favorite thing. I I don't know why the land yacht salesmen of today don't call their Winnebago's land yacht. It really sells like what it is, you know? It's like it's the luxury of it. Why would you not call it a land yacht? Like, come on. (laughs) Um, Marketing fails for sure. Pretension, maybe? Well, you know, I guess there's that. Like people who drive those don't want to be considered rich people. You're you're appealing to like the everyman, I suppose. Yeah, recreational vehicles became the name because land yacht was too hoity-toity, maybe? I don't know. Uh, what did I rate this? You're asking yourself. I am asking myself. Um, well, obviously I gave this, uh, um, well, uh, probably somewhere around, and this is maybe the biggest rating I've ever given. Um, but something around, uh, 23 homemade whippet tanks. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. All by that one kid though. That's almost probably dead by now but well uh, probably <laughs> but but you know what i mean that is probably a larger number of whippet tanks than most world militaries have at, so like that's, certainly yeah that is a, a crazy good rating <laughs> all right um thank you yeah so uh thanks for joining us this week uh if you would like to follow us on social media we are on instagram at cinematics podcast and on twitter at cinematics cast uh, as always, there are spoilers in this episode, so if you don't want the movie spoiled for you, make sure you watch it before you come check this out. So, until next week, thank you guys very much for listening. Bye.